You're listening to Family Life at Cornerstone. A weekly devotion about what is going on in the life of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. I'm Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor at Cornerstone. And today we're going to continue our study in the Gospel for Real Life, the book by Jerry Bridges. And we're going to be looking at his chapter, what he titles The Great Exchange. This is chapter 10 of his book, and it's a really interesting chapter. I'll get into that in just a moment. But for many of us this week, for many of the leadership, the elders, some of the staff, actually all of the staff, and just a few of the families and members in the church, we're going to be in Louisville, Kentucky for a pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel. And so we're looking forward to this. We've been looking forward to this uh, well, it's, an, it's a conference that occurs every two years. The elders and our wives have been able to go in years past, and we're going to be able to do that. Not all of the elders' wives are going to be able to go this year. Not all the elders are going to be able to go. But uh, many of us are. The entire staff is going to be able to be there, myself, Kenan, and Cody. And then we've got some family. So it's, it's going to be an exciting time. We're going to hear some wonderful teaching. We're going to spend time together. Uh, and we're going to spend a lot of time together driving up there. It's a long drive to get uh, to Louisville, Kentucky, but we get to do it together. So I'm really looking forward to that. Please pray for us, not only for our safety there and back, but also this will be a good time for us to build those relationships, to have good conversations, and and really to come back refreshed, uh, but also to come back encouraged by what we've heard. So I would just uh, ask that you would pray for us on that particular trip, and I look forward to being with you next Sunday. Now, this week, we are just coming off of our uh, celebration of the resurrection, our Easter celebration, and it was wonderful. Cody and the praise team and others put in a lot of time uh, working and preparing uh, both to do the scripture readings in dramatic fashion for us, to help us to sense and Uh, just really feel the weight of what was taking place in Jesus' life in those last hours of his life before the cross, Uh, but also uh, the the praise team and musicians for their hard work in putting together just a wonderful song service for us. It was a wonderful celebration. I'm so thankful for that. And then we had a great Sunday. Resurrection Sunday was a blast. There's a ton of people, a ton of visitors. Uh, I trust that people heard the gospel, and we're praying for fruit to come from that. But now we're entering into a stretch of life in the church. We're getting ready for summer ministry, which means VBS. It means Haiti mission trip, and there's other mission trips going on. There's a lot happening. So it's an exciting time, uh, but there's a lot of preparation going into this. But as we are continuing this particular study uh, of the gospel for real life, how the gospel affects our lives daily, um, this particular chapter is really interesting. And it's interesting because this is an issue, this issue of the great exchange, which he explains, uh, is one of those issues that we deal with quite often, or at least in, in pastoral ministry, I've dealt with quite often in doing ministry in the South. And, and so let me, let me share one of the illustrations. There's a couple of illustrations in this chapter that are going to stand out to us. And then there's some passages of Scripture that are going to be really helpful and some questions. So I want to start with a particular illustration that doesn't come until page 110 and 111. It's in the middle of this chapter. And it's under the heading of a miracle of grace. And here's what Bridges says. He says, I believe that human morality, rather than flagrant sin, is the greatest obstacle to the gospel today. And he goes on and he says, if you ask the average law-abiding person 
why he expects to go to heaven, the answer will be some form of, because I've been good. Now, for any of us who've spent time in evangelism and and really been active in seeking to share the gospel with others or just to engage other people on the issues of eternity, in the South, we've heard this question answered this way many, many times. And, and what it does is it shows that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is that's going to reconcile us to God, what it is that's going to provide us entry into eternal life. And, and now I think there are a lot of problems with this. I think there's a lot of reasons why we're here. Uh, and one of those, one of the main reasons, I'll just issue one of those. One of the main reasons that we've gotten to the point of people in the South, especially religious people in the South, believing this kind of thing is because the church, by and large, has just abandoned the, the consistent proclamation of the gospel. In other words, what has happened is we have assumed the gospel in the lives of our people. And it's a really pr- simple process in how this happens. And I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it over the years that when when pastors stand up to preach, since we've made it so simple for people to join the church in many cases, right? Uh, I know I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church and you know, somebody might walk in off the street on any given Sunday. They would hear a, a message preached. They'd be involved in the life of the church on that particular day. Uh, let's say they hear the gospel presented and there's a call to repentance, which might coincide with an altar call. And those, those individuals walk down the aisle and they say, I want to give my life to Jesus. And so they pray the prayer. They have some, you know, 30 seconds of heartfelt conversation with the pastor. And then at the end of the service, the pastor celebrates this new birth uh, in Christ by turning to the congregation and admitting this individual into membership on the spot simply because he recited a prayer. Now, what this does is it assumes that this this individual has heard everything he needs to hear or she needs to hear about Christ and about their need of Christ, and, and they are now born again. They are now Christians. They are now a son of God. So why would you withhold membership from now they're a member of the church? And because that's the way people enter into the church, what happens is there's an assumption that everyone that's in the congregation is already a believer. And so I've seen pastors over the years not preach the gospel as that thing which even believers need to hear on a regular basis, but the gospel is just that thing that gets us saved and gets us in the door, so now we're going to preach something different. We're going to preach morality. Because everybody in the pews are all good Christians, they've already believed the gospel, now we need to teach them how to live, how not to do wrong things, and how to do the right things. And what ends up happening is you, when you assume the gospel, you assume everyone around you already believes the gospel, already gets the gospel, is you begin to preach something else. In this case, morality. And before long, those individuals who really, they didn't understand the gospel to begin with, now they begin to assume that the real message of the Christian life and the Christian faith is all of this morality that they're hearing every given Sunday. And so before long, it, it, it makes perfect sense for them to believe, yes, I'm going to heaven because I do this and I don't do that. And that's where moralism enters into the church.
And, and that makes perfect sense as to why an individual or a whole host of individuals would answer this question, uh, you know, wh- why, would you, why should you expect to go to heaven? And they would say, well, because I do the right things and I avoid the wrong things. Now, this is fundamentally wrong. This is not the gospel of Scripture. This is not the Christian message. The Christian message is the gospel. And so Jerry Bridges goes on and he tells this illustration. He tells this little story to point out the problems with that particular line of thinking. A more religious person, he says, might find it more difficult than a normal, broken person to find forgiveness in Christ. Here's the story. He says there are two men who happen to be kneeling side by side at a communion rail of an English church. One was a former convict who had served time and was now out of prison. The other was the judge who had sentenced him to prison years before. And after the service, the minister asked the judge, Did you recognize the man kneeling beside you? Yes, I did, replied the judge. That was a miracle of grace, he says. You mean that a man you sentenced to prison should be kneeling beside you? No, not at all, said the judge. The miracle is that I should be kneeling beside him. You see, that man clearly knew he was a sinner in need of a Savior. But I was brought up in a religious home. I've lived a decent, moral life and have served my community. It is much more difficult for someone such as I to recognize his need of a Savior. I am the miracle of grace. Now, let's just be honest. Both of them are miracles of grace. Whether, whether you are the, uh, the upright, upstanding, morally, you know, put together citizen, or you are the criminal who served time, any one of us coming to faith in Christ is a miracle of God's grace because the Bible tells us, especially Ephesians chapter 2 and other passages tell us, that we are dead in our sins. Whether we're dead in our sins and we're moral people or we're dead in our sins and we're grossly immoral people, we're both dead in our sins, in our trespasses and sins. And the only hope that we have is the grace of God that makes us alive from our deadness. So both of these individuals would be a miracle of grace. But I would, I would tend to agree with the point that Bridges is trying to make. Those individuals who have lived upstanding moral lives might find it more difficult to assume their own depravity and therefore find it more difficult to, to understand and embrace the reality that it's not their righteousness that's going to get them to heaven, but the righteousness of another. Now, that's what this whole chapter about the Great Exchange is all about. It's about the exchange of one's righteousness or moral uprightness with the true, perfect righteousness of Jesus. And then he goes back and he gives us the illustration of the Apostle Paul. And this is kind of fresh on my mind because this is exactly the sermon that I preached just last week for our Resurrection Day uh, gathering. Uh, the, the change that took place in the Apostle Paul's life that he outlines for us in Philippians chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to go through all of what he says here in Philippians chapter 3, but I would encourage you to read, if you haven't, read Philippians chapter 3. You can read the entire book, obviously, but read Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11 specifically, and you'll see the Apostle Paul talking about um, this radical change that took place in his life. The change took place in his life in that he came to recognize that what he once thought of as um, gain and profitable and good, he now considered to be worthless, even disgusting 
in his eyes. And so what he does is he, he gives us his moral resume. He says, listen, if anyone in this world should have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason to boast about his moral accomplishments, then I have more than even that person. I mean, he's, he's building it up here. He says, listen, here's my moral resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm part of the people of Israel. I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, as to the law, I'm blameless, he says. He was a persecutor of the church. In other words, he stood against this newfangled religious uprising that would, that would seek to take over uh, Judaism. And he says, all of these things were mine. That was me. And I had more to boast of than anybody else. So what happened? Well, the reality is he saw Jesus. He, he, the Jesus that he was persecuting, the Jesus that had been crucified on the cross in Jerusalem, right outside of the temple, Jesus showed himself to Paul. He came to Paul while Paul was traveling on the road um, to Damascus, and he was in the midst of persecuting the church. He saw Jesus, and everything fell into place. And he realized that if Jesus was real, and the gospel was true, and everything that he had seen mattered, and Jesus had been raised from the dead by the power of God, then his message was the true message. And, and everything that Paul had been putting his hope in needed to be rethought. Not only rethought, but abandoned. It needed to be shoved overboard. And that's the, that's the other illustration that I think is really powerful that Bridges uses here. He uses the illustration of, um, of a ship at sea filled with cargo. And there's a storm that has come in. And this, this ship is already struggling to stay afloat because of the waves. But then you have the added pressure of the cargo weighing the ship down. And so the ship is riding low in the water. And it's it's more susceptible to water coming in and, and shipwrecking the whole thing. And, and so the captain, the ship captain, has to make a tough decision. Am I going to try to ride this thing out and maybe lose everything and my life? Or should I, you know, abandon the cargo, throw the cargo overboard in the hopes that we might be spared and the ship might survive. Now that's a challenging decision for any ship captain because it's, it's, a, it's a gamble, really. But ultimately, that, that's what we need to do. If, if we, are, we have this onboard cargo of our own personal righteousness that we think is going to earn us some favor with God, then there comes a point when we see the gospel for what it says. The gospel tells us that we can't be saved on our own. In fact, no human being will be justified by works of the law. That's what we read in Romans chapter 3. We can't hope to save ourselves. And so we, have, we hold on to this righteousness. But when we see the gospel, which says you can't save yourself, but Christ died to save you. Your righteousness is not enough, but his righteousness is just what you need and it's available to you. Then, then the analogy or the, the illustration is that we would be willing to throw our righteousness overboard. That we would be willing to, to lose all of the cargo that we've been storing up over the years in order to truly obtain the right cargo and to save our lives or to, to be saved by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now that's what he means by Paul's great exchange. And that's what our minds have to grasp is really taking place in the gospel. Now, 
I know what some people are going to say, and this is what I pointed out in the sermon just last week. Some people are going to say, wait a minute, how is Jesus's righteousness better than my own righteousness? Well, let me give you another illustration. Uh, the, the, the whole section of Philippians 3 is really comparing and con- contrasting uh, a human righteousness, Paul's righteousness, with the righteousness of Jesus. And, and Paul says this, he says, "...whatever gain I had, I now count it as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I count everything to be rubbish in order that I may gain Him and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now here's the question. Why is it better to have His righteousness than my own? Well, here's a thought experiment. If you and I, well, if, if, if you, let's say you, if you do one act of pure righteousness every day of your life, one act of, of pure obedience to God that's not fueled by some selfish motive or some sinful ambition, one pure act of righteousness per day, and you live for 80 years, the, the numbers come out to somewhere around 29,000. Now, I stated that in the sermon, and, and I'll state it again. This is being ridiculously generous. Um, none of us do one pure act of righteousness every day of our lives. I mean, think about the time when we were children. Think about the time when we didn't have any concept of God's Word and God's truth and God's law. Think about those times when we were clearly and willingly and knowingly living in rebellion to God in those high school years, those teenage years, those college years, or maybe even early adulthood. The, the, the idea that we would do one pure act of righteousness per day, every day of our life, is, is really crazy. But if we did, we would uh, rack up over 29,000 good deeds in a lifetime. But here's the way that justice works. If we're doing one pure act of righteousness every day, what about the acts of unrighteousness every day that would counteract and subtract from our, you know, our storehouse here? Let's assume that we just do one pure act of unrighteousness every day, one lie, one act of deception, one angry thought, one lustful thought, one hateful thought, one greedy response, one you know, act of pride, one act of impatience, one act of gossip, one thought of vanity, just one per day. Which again, is being ridiculously generous because our hearts are deceptively wicked, our thoughts are continually on sin, and we are acting in sin all the time. But, but just in the event that we can do this thought experiment, it's a one-to-one correlation here. One act of righteousness a day versus one act of unrighteousness a day. And in the end, it's a wash. And we have nothing to show for the entirety of our life. But this is just a thought experiment. The reality is that none of us can be saved by this. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. That's Galatians 3.10. See, the law cannot save us. Our imagined righteousness will never make us right with God. And, and the idea that Paul has in this picture of, of Philippians 3 is that we would be, you know, in some way standing before God with our broken, sinful, just empty righteousness and holding it up to God and saying, hey, this is why you should let me into heaven. And that, that just doesn't make any sense. The picture is absurd. Now, on the other hand, that's, that's what it looks like to be putting our hope in our own righteousness. But Paul says, listen, 
I don't care to be found in you know having my own righteousness that comes from the law. I'm wanting to be found having a righteousness that from God that comes through Christ and faith in Christ. Now here's the difference. Imagine in that same thought experiment that that every day of Jesus's life he did at least one act of pure righteousness. And we know that he did many more. If we look at some of the days of his ministry, he's healing people, he's um, he's confronting sin in others, he's preaching the gospel, he's loving the Lord, he's serving, he's caring, he's doing all these things, and that's just in one day. He's just racking up righteousness. And the Bible tells us that Jesus fully completed the law, that Jesus fully obeyed the law, earning a perfect righteousness in the sight of God. And in Jesus' case, there is no unrighteousness to subtract from his righteousness. Right? The Bible says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he is without sin. And the question is, whose righteousness are you putting your hope in? Are you going to hold on to your own? Or are you going to embrace the gospel of grace, which says, no, you can obtain through faith. You can gain through faith. You can have credited to your account through faith the perfect, complete righteousness of Jesus. See, that's the great exchange that this is all about. Now, here's the problem. Many of us just don't see that, or at least many people don't see that. Going back to the analogy of the judge and the criminal, you know, it was a miracle of grace that the judge recognized not only was he a good, moral, upstanding, right citizen, but before God he was a helpless, hopeless sinner. See, that's where we have to get to. And when we get to that point, when we come to understand that we are dead in our sins, when we come to understand that God is holy and we are not, when we come to understand that nothing we can do can earn us the righteousness of God, then what we'll do is we'll renounce our confidence in our own religious experience and we will trust in Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness. Jerry Bridges goes on on page 111. He says, If your hope of eternal life is based on your own goodness, then your cargo of religion has actually become dangerous to you, and it will keep you from heaven. Now, that's something that we need to understand. But we also need to understand this, that if we have come to understand and see that our righteousness is about to shipwreck our eternity, and we cast our righteousness overboard to to claim for ourselves the righteousness of Christ, then we will be saved. Now, we need to remind ourselves of this every day. We need to learn and remind ourselves every day that God's love for us, that God's favor, that God's salvation, it comes to us not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the merits of Christ. Now, Bridges asked this question. He says, is there any place in the Christian life then for the practice of righteousness, for the practice of spiritual discipline and obedience to God and sacrificial service to Him? Well, absolutely. Absolutely there is. And he he talks about that in the next section of pressing on. This understanding of the fact that we've exchanged our righteousness for Christ's greater righteousness doesn't keep us from straining forward. It doesn't keep us from growing in Christ, but it keeps us from putting our confidence in ourselves. Obedience and good works, he says, this is at the end of the chapter, are definitely important to the Christian life. The, The entire New Testament clearly affirms this. But if we try to make our obedience and good works meritorious, like they earn for us eternal life, then they become dangerous, they become garbage. 
So he prays at the end, may we clearly see that in the unsearchable riches of Christ and in the right standing with God that comes from those riches, that we can both have assurance of eternal life and God's favor in this life. So here are the questions. Are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone as the basis for your right standing with God? Are you... If you have clearly trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, are you still clinging to the idea that you must now earn God's favor in this life by your own performance? I sincerely hope not. The Apostle Paul is one example. These stories are greater examples. This chapter is a wonderful help to us to show that not only for eternity, but even in this life today, we are exchanging our good works, which are actually broken works, for the perfect work of Christ. And in that work, we stand. And that's a comforting reality. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thanks for listening.